This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Miranda Cochran, who is the author of Witchcraft and Adolescence in American Popular Culture, Teen Witches, which is part of the horror series. Um, Miranda, could you start by talking a little bit of why you um, decided to write this and write about teen witches in the United States? Okay. Um, so, well, first off, I'm obsessed with witches and I have been ever since I was a child. Um, I was one of those kids. I dressed up as a witch every Halloween and I watched the VHS of Hocus Pocus until it wore out. So I've, I've always been interested in witches and witchcraft. But this book sort of came about in a strange roundabout manner. It, it grew out of an article that I wrote on uh, Ray Bradbury and some of his short stories. And one of Bradbury's kind of lesser known works is a collection of stories. Um, I guess you can't even really call it a single work because it's something that he worked on throughout his life. So from the 1940s up until the early 2000s. Uh, and he wrote about this family called the Elliots who are kind of like, kind of like the Adams family in a way. They're just this kind of cookie monstrous family there are vampires in the family there are mummies in the family there's one ordinary human boy in the family who's a little bit out of place and a little bit strange but the thing that really grabbed me is that they the family has a daughter named Cece and Cece is a witch and her her ability is that she can essentially leave her body I guess what we would call like astral projection but what I thought was really fascinating about the character is that the way Bradbury described her and she is She's meant to be 17 in the collection of stories, uh, even though potentially being a witch and belonging to the supernatural family, perhaps she's in actuality much older, but she's described as being a 17 year old girl. And the way that her power functions is that she has the ability to she, she basically she lies in bed, she spends all day in her room lying in bed. But while she's lying in bed, she can leave her body and travel out in the world and inhabit other bodies and other identities. And then she'll come back downstairs and she'll tell her family about all these adventures she's experienced while traveling from her body. 
But at the same time, her parents will give out about her and complain about her and say, oh, she should you know, go out and get, be productive and get a job. And one of the things that really sort of grabbed me when I was writing about those stories was how much Bradbury's description of this witch character really sums up a lot of like the adolescent experience, this idea of your world being your bedroom, this idea of dreaming or projecting yourself out into the world beyond uh, the kind of the lethargy. Um, she's often referred to kind of as the sleeper because her her power sort of involves lying still and sending her her spirit out into the world. And all of these images kind of lethargy lying about kind of the being physically confined within your home or your room, but sort of projecting yourself outward into the wider world. So much of that reminded me of the experience of adolescence. And I thought, you know, what a fascinating character. And as I was thinking about the stories, um, the first of which were published in the 1940s, I started kind of connecting the dots and thinking about, well, it makes perfect sense that Ray Bradbury was writing about this witch who was a teenage girl in the 1940s, because the 1940s and the post-World War II period is when the whole teenager archetype really comes into being and really crystallizes in U.S. culture. Uh, So that's kind of where it started, and it kind of grew from there as I started identifying other adolescent or teenage girl witches who start to appear from about the 1940s onwards. So it spiraled from there. And I guess the reason I grounded it in the US, uh, when I first proposed the book, actually, I was thinking of a much broader study. So I was going to like dig in and look at sort of just teen witches more broadly. So I was going to bring in things like, uh, you know, the the folk horror film Blood on Satan's Claw. And I was maybe going to look at Harry Potter and the worst witch and things like that. But in the end, um, I was, well, I was encouraged to narrow things down by the publisher. But in the end, I also sort of decided to focus on the U.S. just because of that connection between U.S. popular culture in the post-World War II period, that sort of social upheaval comp- combined with unprecedented affluence for certain segments of the population and how that sort of created the perfect environment for the, you know, for teenage culture to um, to germinate. So I sort of confined it to the US for that reason. Uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of a roundabout way of like, I basic saying like, basically, I found a few stories that really sort of like, crystallized in my mind, the kind of connection between teen witch and adolescence more broadly, and it just sort of built from there, really. Yeah, I have to say that you, um, I had not heard of those Ray Bradbury short stories or read them. So now you've added more to my like, TBR list that is already too long. So because I was like, these seem really awesome. Why don't anybody talk about these Ray Bradbury stories? They're so fun. They're so fun. And actually, he has a whole collection that he published in the, the latter part of his life. I think he published it in the early 2000s called From the Dust Returned. And it has all of those stories in them. So you can kind of see all the the weird and wacky adventures of this very strange Midwestern monster family. So I have to find those. Oh, absolutely. So so can you start by kind of you sort of, um, before we get into some of the other texts that you looked at and sort of how you structured this, can you kind of um, situate us in this sort of um, space of the teen witch and how you kind of looked at it from a theoretical viewpoint um, in grounding it in? You sort of talked a little bit about that, about teen culture, um, but some of the other aspects of sort of teenage witches especially in the United States? Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess what I was initially looking at when I came to the book 
was the teen witch just as a reflection of this new cultural form, this new demographic, the teenager. So, you know, as I'm sure most people who are sort of familiar with that period in U.S. history will know, teenage culture really sort of comes into its own during the 1940s, during the Second World War, and then really just like peaks and becomes a huge phenomenon after the war, particularly in the 1950s. It's it's actually something that began around the, the Depression, uh, during the Great Depression, with sort of fewer jobs available for adults. Uh, young people were sort of, you know, herded into schools and encouraged to stay in school a little bit longer. Um, and then, obviously, once you get into the Second World War and the period after the, world, the Second World War, when the U.S. economy just, you know, becomes so um, so productive and so affluent. Um, there is, again, for certain segments of the population. And I guess when we talk about a lot of these things, like, you know, the teenager as a cultural demographic and this cultural phenomenon, we're like mostly looking at kind of white middle-class families. But for a lot of white middle-class families, that sort of uptick in production, the expansion of white-collar jobs in the late 40s, early 1950s, it, it meant that, you know, families had more money, they were able to, their children, as a result, didn't have to work. They were able to stay in school longer. If they did work, it was maybe a job on weekends to get some extra income. Families had more disposable income, so they could give their kids an allowance or they could help them to buy things, you know, music and clothes and, you know, things like that. So the the emergence of the teenager is in many ways really tied to the U.S. economy at that time in the 1940s and it's really tied to kind of the, the cultural and financial changes of that period so you've basically more young people staying in school longer because of greater financial security of the period and as a result of that they sort of start relying on each other as peer groups as you know um, as kind of arbitrators of meaning um, and as sort of role models more so than adults. So teenagers are no longer just sort of, you know, adults in training or adults in waiting. They sort of start carving out their own separate identities, kind of forged out of peer group interactions and then out of a sort of burgeoning culture. And the term teenager is, you know, a comparatively new term. It emerged in the 1940s, in the first half of the 1940s. So it's a very, very new phenomenon. And I guess one of the things that really intrigued me about that period is how people talked about the teenager and particularly the teenage girl, um, how there was, on the one hand, a lot of anxiety about teenage girls. You know, they're young women who are sort of straddling the boundary between the domestic sphere and that they still live at home with their parents and with their families, but also, you know, kind of trespassing out into the public sphere through, you know, school activities and social activities. They're dating, they're spending time with boys. So there's this real sort of like anxiety about the teenage girl. And you see a lot of like quite negative discussions about teenage girls where they're described as being potentially promiscuous. Like there's some articles from the early 1940s that talk about how teenage girls, these, you know, emerging teenage girls, how they don't, you know, when they're dating, they don't stick to one boy, but they have this like fast turnover of dates. So they're going out with a different boy every night. And even though the articles don't specifically touch on the idea of promiscuity or, you know, teenage sexuality, that's kind of the underlying fear that you get there. 
Um, and then also there's a lot of negative stuff surrounding, you know, the, the supposed superficiality of teenage girls and their kind of rabid consumption of music and clothes and, you know, junk food and all of this stuff that's considered silly and ephemeral. Uh, so it's quite negative on the one hand. And then on the other hand, though, the whole idea of teenagers and again, specifically teenage girls because of their association with consumption in some ways, it's also quite positive because the fact that parents can allow their kid, their children this extended period of childhood where they can stay in school longer and just have fun with their friends, it's sort of a reflection of American affluence and it kind of signals the prominence or the, sorry, the prosperity of new American culture as it's emerging. So there's a real sort of, um, there's a really sort of ambivalent attitude towards teen girls at that time. And then the other thing is that because the teen girl is a comparatively new demographic, I mean, obviously there were different ideas about youth and adolescence in, you know, in the early modern period in the 19th century. But the teenager as a specific demographic, because it's so new, it's really hard for people to to talk about them and to kind of figure out how they should be framing them or understanding them. So one of the critics I looked at, for example, Ileana Nash, who has this book called American Sweethearts, which is all about like teen girl films in the 1940s. She talks about how writers, um, particularly journalists talking about teenagers, imported or borrowed language from anthropology in particular to talk about teenage girls. So they would refer to them in some ways kind of tongue in cheek using this very kind of anthropological language, you know, as being like tribes, having a kind of tribal culture. And they would write about them in this weird sort of anthropological kind of ethnographic way as if they're, you know, observing some remote uncontacted tribe. And there's there's even an article, a short piece by Shirley Jackson, where she talks about her daughter and her daughter's friends and how they decide, you know, what's cool and what isn't um, and their kind of their interactions and the, the language they speak. And she describes their sort of interactions as, and I, I'm kind of paraphrasing because I don't have the direct quote, but she describes their interactions as making your average savage initiation, right, look like milk time at the local kindergarten. So there's this real kind of interesting importation of language. Of language. In other articles, you see journalists using um, sort of more um, kind of nature-based language to talk about teenage girls you get a lot of articles comparing them to flocks of birds or geese you get articles comparing them to cats so there's this whole kind of importation of pre-existing language and iconography to talk about teenage girls that you see in the media at this time and I guess one of the things that really struck me was that alongside this kind of you know this anthropological language this zoological language you also get like the language of the teen witch or the image of the teen witch as a way of talking about teenage girls and these kind of tropes and images and conventions associated with witchcraft drawn, I guess, more from popular culture than anything else. Um, you know, they become this very useful way of like articulating and making sense of the teenage girl and what she functions and what her role is. Um, so that's something that that really grabbed me, um, because as I was saying, I was I initially was looking at the teenage witch as a reflection of cultural anxieties about the teenage girl. But the more I looked into it, the more I could see that particularly in that immediate post-war period in the 40s and 50s, there's this use of witchcraft imagery as a way of like thinking about and understanding and trying to figure out what makes the teenage girl unique, what makes her interesting 
but also what makes her potentially threatening as well. So that I guess that's kind of the real the real germ of the project as well. And so you start, like you said, you start by um, looking at sort of the, you know, you talk about the 40s, but then moving into the 50s, too. And so you start, um, let's get into some of these um, sort of case studies that you look at, right, um, with um, you called your chap the, a pack of Bobby Soxers. But you look at kind of um, even the precursor to Arthur Miller's The Crucible and that sort of narrative and story. So can you kind of start, tell us a little bit about that um, first sort of chapter, the first sort of text that you look at, um, in addition to Ray Bradbury, um, and what you're sort of grounding us in then in that um, time frame. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first texts that I got really, really interested in when I was looking at this whole phenomenon was actually not a work of fiction. Um, it's, I think, the only nonfiction work that I discussed in the entire book. It's an actual, actually a historical study from the late 1940s, from 1949, by an American journalist named Marion L. Starkey. And the book is called um, The Devil in Massachusetts. And it's basically a historical study of the Salem witch trials. And it's a really interesting book because while it does have some inaccuracies, for a long time, it was one of the go-to texts for historians um, and for kind of readers in general who wanted to know about the Salem witch trials. And it's a really fascinating book because... Starkey was writing the book in the late 1940s, so just after the Second World War. And she's really informed by sort of the the hysterics and the mob mentality and the authoritarianism of Nazi Germany, but also like the emerging kind of um, or but also of like the uh, the Stalinist regime in Soviet Russia as well. She's really interested in the effects and the cultural impact of totalitarian states. So a lot of her ideas and a lot of her imagery, and she says it very explicitly in the book, come from images derived from these totalitarian regimes. And she makes parallels between Puritan, she you know, creates parallels or she you know, highlights parallels between Puritan New England and uh, you know, Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany, and so on. But in addition to that, um, and it's it's an interesting sort of like uh, almost kind of presentist approach where she's using like these current events as a lens to look back on the Salem witch trials. But so in addition to, you know, the growth of totalitarianism in the 20th century and also psychoanalysis, she draws a lot on psychoanalytical perspectives. In addition to these two modern kind of uh, frameworks, she also, uh, though she's not as explicit about it, she also uses the figure of the teenage girl, the modern teenage girl, to read and interpret the actions and the behaviors of the young women at the center of the Salem witch trials, which is really fascinating because, I mean, in a way, it's, you know, it's very anachronistic. It it doesn't really make sense because during the early modern period, obviously, there was a conception of youth as a distinct period, you know, the period where a person was growing up and kind of learning how to be a responsible citizen, a good Christian and all of these things. And, you know, there were tracts written in the early modern period where adults worried about the behavior of today's youth. You know, adults have always been worrying about teenagers, you know, all the way back, you know, before teenagers even existed. But like the idea of the teenager as a specific demographic in the modern sense didn't exist in the, you know, in the 1600s, in the late 17th century, when the Salem witch trials occurred. And 
Starkey takes like very modern uh, interpretations or modern characteristics associated with the teenage girl and sort of projects them backwards onto the young women who uh, were associated with the Salem witch trials, mostly as accusers, mostly as afflicted girls who who claimed, you know, affliction by witches. Some were accused of witchcraft as well, either before or after claiming to be afflicted, but most of them were afflicted rather than being witches in and of themselves. But she uses very modern ideas about adolescence and the teenager to talk about these girls. And one of the sort of the most striking phrases in the book, and one of the things that really drew me in as someone who was interested in the teen witch as an archetype, was that she described these young girls in Salem at the end of the 17th century as bobby soxers. And the term bobby soxers is a, you know, a 20th century phrase, a comparatively modern phrase. It emerged in kind of the the 1940s to describe uh, young girls who were fans of swing music and wore like a specific type of socks, bobby socks. So it was a way of describing like the musical and kind of fashion and cultural affiliation of teenage girls. It was basically a term for teenage girls that described the kinds of fads that teenage girls in the 40s were buying into. and Starkey takes this term that very much describes a specific type of teenager in the 1940s and uses it to describe these teenage girls at the end of the 17th century. And she says, you know, these girls who you know started accusing their neighbors and members of their community of witchcraft, you know, if they were, you know, they are, they would essentially, you know, kind of using a modern term, we would describe them as bobby soxers. So she uses this kind of terminology, this kind of modern teen language, the bobby soxer, to uh, talk about te- the girls at the center of the Salem witch trials. She also sort of compares their behavior and their their hysterics. She refers to them as kind of hysterical on numerous occasions as kind of being similar to the behavior of teenage girls at like music concerts and things like that. So she uses these very sort of like mid 20th century ideas of adolescence to talk about the teen girls at the center of the Salem witch trials. She also kind of connects what happens to them, uh, their claims that they are being bewitched by neighbors and some of their symptoms. She, you know, she connects some of those to, to kind of to lethargy, to adolescent boredom, to sexual frustration. Again, as I said earlier, she also describes some of their behavior as hysterical even though the term hysteria was kind of diminishing at that time and wasn't being used as commonly but she does use the term hysteria to talk about the girls uh though what she describes a lot of the time actually seems to have more in common with sort of hormonal behavior or you know uh maybe behavior or symptoms that might surround you know menarche or menstruation and things like that as well so she's constructing them in these kind of fairly modern terms and one of the things I sort of argue is that as a result of that Starkey really you know crystallizes the figure of the teen witch creating this sort of parallel between the young women involved in the Salem witch trials who again most of them weren't accused of witchcraft Um, Most of them were accusers, but at the same time, they were nevertheless associated with the supernatural, either by virtue of their being afflicted, by virtue of a supposed ability to uh, identify witches, 
or later on in the trials, as things were winding down, many people theorized or suggested that these girls had been led astray by the devil. So there was kind of a connection with the devil there as well. But in sort of bringing together the image of these afflicted young women, these women with a close relationship to witchcraft and the modern adolescent, the kind of anachronism that uh, that Starkey creates, I think, very much crystallizes that figure of the teen witch. And then Starkey's book, The Devil in Massachusetts, goes on to become a huge influence on um, Arthur Miller's Crucible. Uh, he references it um, in the play itself and in one of his essays where he talks about the composition of the play, he talks about reading Starkey's book. So that book becomes one of the key sources used in The Crucible. And so Miller draws on a lot of Starkey's ideas of where, you know, or a lot of Starkey's images of the Salem girls, the Salem afflicted as being these kind of bored, sexually frustrated, almost modern teenagers with this kind of like, kind of like a kind of proto mean girls sort of nasty clickishness. So he draws on a lot of those ideas from Starkey's work. Um, And again, you see kind of similar anachronisms uh, within that play as well. Right. So you sort of situate us in this and then um, your next chapter goes into the 1960s and, and readers and, and among other texts, one of my all-time favorites, <laughs> The Witch of Blackbird Pond, right? Like, I loved that book when I was growing up. Um, so can you talk a little bit about then that, I mean, you talk about sort of, you call the subtitle for that chapter, Identity Formation and um, Perverse Readers in the Long 1960s. So can you talk about then how the witch comes in in the 1960s and in these texts? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in the previous chapter, in the chapter where I'm talking about Starkey and Miller, much of that chapter sort of focuses on how authors, like obviously adult authors, uh, grown-ups essentially, use the figure of the teen witch as a way of almost trying to figure out what the teenage girl is. Like, what is her role? What is good about her? What is bad about her? What is potentially threatening about her? There's also a lot of kind of trying to figure out, like, you know, how do we position or understand the teenage girl? She's kind of caught between, you know, kind of culture and biology, uh, between sort of, uh, you know, so she she's this kind of weird liminal figure. Um, so a lot of the, the chapter on the 1940s and 50s is sort of adult writers trying to figure out what the teenage girl is, how to position her, how to understand her, how to talk about her. But then I think in the 1960s, uh, well, the late 50s, early 60s, you start to see a kind of a change in how the teen witch is represented. And she starts being, in some ways, she starts appearing in more work aimed at actual teenagers. So hence references to things like The Witch of Blackbird Pond, which is a young adult novel, or the Archie Sabrina comics. They're works that are actually aimed at teenage girls. And certainly in those two texts, the teenage witch becomes this sort of admirable figure who embodies positive elements of adolescence or what the authors consider to be positive elements of adolescence. Uh, So, for example, in The Witch of Blackbird Pond, Kit is a character who, over the course of the novel, 
grows from being, you know, quite a self-centered, spoiled character into this intelligent, brave young woman who stands up for vulnerable members of her community and protects those around her. The reason I've kind of slotted her into into the teen witch book is that even though she's not actually a witch, there are really no supernatural elements in the Witch of Blackbird Pond. Um, The story is set in the 17th century New England colonies, and she's accused of witchcraft, uh, mostly, again, because of her slightly unusual behavior, her refusal to adhere to certain community norms, and then later her attempts to educate uh, a young girl and to teach her how to read. Um, So she's not a witch in the sense of having magical powers, but she has sort of the identity of the witch foisted upon her. Um, And she's a character who's like, whose role as a witch, her, you know, the fact that she's perceived as a witch in the community is very much tied into her sort of refusal to conform to sort of negative aspects of the society she exists within, while at the same time, sort of learning to temper her own selfishness and work as part of that community in more positive ways. So she's very much a character who's intended for teenage girls and she's intended in some ways as a sort of model for teenage readers as a way of teaching them about uh, responsibility, compassion, you know, community involvement, um, while also kind of teaching them about, you know, yes, it's you know, teaching them basically that, yes, it's good to, you know, to participate and care for your community, but also it's good to, you know, stand against your community when what they are, when what they are doing is wrong. So it, it teaches young readers an array of sort of important messages. And then the, the other book that I look at as being, or the other text that I look at as being very much aimed at teenagers and very much attempting to sort of inculcate what the creators perceived as positive values uh, would be the early Sabrina uh, comics. So the early Sabrina, the teenage witch comics. So Sabrina is kind of a a ubiquitous figure throughout the entire book. She kind of, she keeps appearing because there've been so many reimaginings and reinterpretations of Sabrina over the years. But in the 1960s comics, like they're, you know, they're pretty straightforward. You know, Sabrina is a, teenage girl who is also a witch she lives with her two aunts who look like your typical you know uh, halloween witches with the pointy hats and you know the big scary noses and all of that stuff but she's just in many ways a regular teenage girl who likes music and fashion and boys and she uses her powers basically to acquire things that make her you know, popular and desirable as a teen girl in the 1960s. So she uses her magic to, you know, do, you know, create new outfits and give herself makeovers and summon rock bands to play at, you know, parties and things like that. And I think even though the values that both of those texts are trying to impart, I mean, Sabrina is in very many ways a very conventional and very consumerist work in certain ways. Um, certainly the early comics, obviously, Things change with the the TV series and the more you know the more recent iterations. But in the '60s, she's she's quite conventional. She's quite consumerist. Everything is about using magic to you know summon parties and get boys to like her and things like that. Um, and then on the other hand, the Witch of Blackbird Pond is more about kind of being true to yourself and you know learning compassion for others. Even though the values they impart are very different, they are attempting to inculcate in an adolescent readership values that are perceived as positive and the figure of the witch is sort of central to that in kit's case it's because that 
identity is sort of projected onto her. Uh, in the case of Sabrina, the sort of glamour associated with the teenage witch adds to the sort of glamour associated with consumerism. Uh, so those works are kind of more conventional. And then in the second half of the chapter, I look at later works that are perhaps a little bit less conventional. So I look at Stephen King's Carrie, which was published in which was written in 1973, but published in 1974. So it gets in right at the tail end of this period um, known as the, the long 1960s, which stretches from around 1955 with the kind of the emergence of things like the civil rights movement up to 1973 and the economic crash. Uh, it gets in right at the tail end of that. And then the other book I look at from around that time period is Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And in those two books, you have two sort of witchy teenage girls, Carrie White and Mary Cat Blackwood, who they're witches in kind of unconventional ways, but they are associated either with, you know, supernatural abilities or with, you know, certain aspects of the occult, like poisons and magical rituals and black cats and all of these things. Um, I kind of look at them as kind of inversions of that sort of teen role model. So both of those characters I look at as characters who are perhaps in some ways quite monstrous, particularly in terms of their actions and particularly in terms of causing harm to others. But they also cause harm to others in a way that sort of liberates them from certain patriarchal social confines. Um, so they use violence, they use the powers at their disposal to sort of liberate themselves from certain forms of oppression. And I look at them through the lens of this idea of perverse readership, which basically is the idea of, it basically refers to how readers or viewers in the case of film will often reinterpret, reinter, or sorry, interpret text in ways other than we might expect. So perverse readership or viewership uh, or I think it's spectatorship, as Janet Steiger calls it, might refer to how we as readers or viewers might interpret a character in a film or on, in a book who is meant to be a villain as actually kind of heroic or empathetic or understandable uh, in their actions. It's how we sort of take things and interpret them in unexpected ways and in ways which, you know, maybe might not conform to the the expected morality of the text so i look at both of those works in that way and how for certain teenage readers these two characters who are you know violent potentially murderous kind of monstrous also emerge as somewhat empowering figures as well this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And it's really interesting when you say that when reading this, because I think Carrie is one of those texts where um, many people sympathize with Carrie um, in these ways. And there's even um, Tiffany Jackson wrote a kind of remake. She just put out a remake book of Carrie. So 
what is it called? And I, I'll, when I think of the name of it, I'll text oh it to you. My, please do. Yeah. So my student told me this semester, I had a student who's like, you need to read this book and it's her version, but it's Carrie. Um, and I read it. It's good. Um, but she's an African-American, right? So it's kind of her retelling of Carrie from sort of this modern African-American perspective, which is, which is really great. So like, it made me think of like that too, like this idea, like, there's these sympathetic characters that we don't want to care about all the time, but we, you know, yes, we are invested in. Absolutely. And there's, there's this great book by um, Andrew Scahill, um, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, called Revolting Children, where he talks about like monstrous children in fiction. And one of the things he talks about in that book is a class he was teaching um, and how I think it was a class on horror and how within the context of that class, Carrie in particular, like emerged as this, you know, heroic figure. Students generally empathized with her. And he talked in particular about how for like LGBTQ plus students in particular, Carrie, who is this figure who is, you know, bullied and abused and treated so poorly, you know, how she actually emerges as this heroic figure who through her violence sort of momentarily because obviously she's you know she's punished at the end who momentarily breaks free of oppression and you know has her revenge and you know it for many readers especially readers who belong to marginalized groups there's actually something very cathartic about that so that's something i found really interesting in both uh carrie and we have always lived in the castle this idea of like catharsis in violence and you know teenage girls are you know even though Again, as I was saying earlier, so much of that kind of immediate post-war discussion and the emergence of the teenage girl centers around like very white middle class identities. I think a lot of teenage girls do nevertheless feel sort of very powerless in their lives. And I think sometimes these kinds of characters who, you know, very violently shake off their oppression can become, you know, quite appealing or quite alluring, which I think is something you see in a lot of the teen witch texts, um, particularly some of the more subversive ones that you get in the 1960s and 70s. And then again, in kind of the, you know, the 2000s and the 2010s, this kind of, these kind of subversive, violent, potentially monstrous figures, you know, they become very empowering in some ways. Right. And you move into, so like you, from the sixties, then you move into, um, another, another reiteration of Sabrina. Right. And, I know, um, I know. <laughs> you know, she keeps, it's, and it's really, I, I'm all, I'm fascinated by Sabrina because of all the different ways she like exists in our world. Um, but also, um, some of my favorite, uh, teenage witches like Buffy, and then you also bring in the craft. So can you talk a little bit then? I think you, talk about like the the makeover right and that kind of so can you talk about that move into sort of television um and kind of how you see that playing out in this narrative you're talking of yeah the absolutely Witch. so yeah I mean I'm also kind of fascinated by Sabrina and I think one thing I wrote in a footnote in the book was that I think someone should write an entire book about Sabrina and her various iterations because I didn't even touch on all of them I mean the comics went from like you know, started in the 60s, continued on through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Like, you could write uh, an entire book about the Sabrina comics, the TV shows, the cartoons, you know, the magazines. They had magazines for teenage girls for a while. Like, someone should do an entire book on her. But, yeah, so after... So, in the next chapter, I move on from, like, the, the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s 
on into the 80s and 90s. And I particularly look at this period associated with neoliberalism and post-feminism, and particularly this idea of, you know, individual responsibility of women, you know, achieving empowerment, not collectively, but through individual agency and individual responsibility and these ideas associated with you know feminism being a thing of the past so that's kind of the kind of the dominant 80s 90s discourse so i look at a couple of texts from that period i look at teen witch uh which i don't know if you've seen it it's a very um it's a very cheesy movie but it has a lot of interesting ideas um sabrina the the 90s tv show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then The Craft. And I look at these texts through the lens, as I said, of like post-feminism and neoliberalism. And in particular, I connect this to the idea of the makeover or the sort of magical transformation. And some of this comes from the work of the critic Rachel Mosley, who's written, uh, who's one of the few scholars to really write in depth about the teen witch previously. And she writes a lot about makeovers in shows like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, for example. Um, So I look at the kind of the magical makeover as in some ways in certain texts as sort of expressing these neoliberal kind of post-feminist ideas about um, individual agency. And in particular in Teen Witch, which was released at the end of the 1980s, and it's very much a sort of like 80s kind of Reagan era film. It's very much, again, about consumerism and consumption and affluence. Um, but it's a film in which the protagonist essentially, you know, she gains magical powers on her 16th birthday and she uses it to transform herself into the most popular girl in school. And she uses it to sort of transform herself into the ideal of kind of 1980s kind of fashionable femininity. So I look at that text as a text that I think had uses the teen witch in a very reactionary way who uses her you know uses the figure of the teen witch as a way of achieving kind of social uh capital within a very sort of restrictive patriarchal context but conversely then kind of moving into the 90s uh which you know is kind of you know um it it has a lot of that you know post-feminist discourse but it's also the period of you know third wave feminism of riot girl of that sort of pushback against um against kind of you know the the reagan era conservatism so i look at sort of at works like the the 90s sabrina series buffy the vampire slayer and the craft in particular as using the makeover motif in more creative ways so Whereas in Teen Witch, the makeover motif is deployed, again, as I said, in this very sort of hegemonic way in, you know, uh, allowing the main character to sort of adhere to, you know, very patriarchal ideals, very conservative ideals about who she should be in things like Sabrina, in Buffy, in The Craft. It's a little bit more complex and convoluted. Uh, There's more room for sort of play and subversion. So, for example, in the Sabrina series, there are episodes where Sabrina uses her magic to transform herself briefly into a boy. Um, And it's very much about rather than reinforcing kind of binary conceptions of gender instead it kind of plays with those conceptions of gender um, and shows how certain you know apparently gendered characteristics bleed over between different identities Uh, so Sabrina is a little bit more playful a little bit more subversive and I think you see similar things 
in the craft and in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there are numerous makeover episodes associated with the character Willow, who is kind of the core witch within the series. And she often uses magic or has magic i get up not well she isn't always using the magic herself she often has magical things happen to her that sort of change her appearance or change her identity but it's rarely framed as a sort of fixed transformation into something better into a more appropriate or more acceptable form of femininity instead it's framed as more of a kind of play with identity and a sort of a temporary, you know, inhabitation of certain identities that allows her to learn different things about herself and who she is. But Willow's makeovers are never really presented as her transforming into someone better or into a more acceptable form of femininity. Um, and I think you you get that a little bit with the craft as well, with some of the makeovers in that um, as well. It's a little bit more playful, a little bit more, um, a little bit more dynamic and not as rigid. Um, in terms of, you know, this idea of makeover as a kind of teleological progression from unacceptable femininity to acceptable femininity. Um, so those are kind of my my cluster of late 80s, 90s, early 2000s texts. Right. And and then after that, you kind of you bring us back to Sabrina because Sabrina keeps coming back in yes. our lives. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you kind of then, you know, move out of move into looking at the fourth wave feminist, um, the way that American Horror Story kind of uses teen texts and back to the, the new chilling adventures of Sabrina. But can you talk about then like um, what you're seeing more recently with these teen witches and how they have sort of transformed in the past like five years or so five ten years absolutely and i think it was actually sort of in addition to reading some of those like bradbury texts that i talked about at the beginning it was also the cultural context of like the late 2010s the late 2010s that also really spurred me on to write this book because i think i started writing it in I started writing the proposal in around 2018, 2019. And obviously what was going on at that time was a lot of discourse surrounding things like Me Too, fourth wave feminism, discussions about agency and consent. That was very much sort of the zeitgeist of those years. And in some ways it's interesting to see how, while parts of that have endured, how quickly a lot of that zeitgeist has also kind of diminished Uh, But that was very much in the air as I was writing the proposal. And it was very much reflected in a lot of the teen witch texts that were emerging at that time, particularly the 2010s and the very early 2020s. So the works that I look at in the in the last chapter are focused very are. American Horror Story Apocalypse, or sorry, American Horror Story Coven, sorry, Apocalypse on the Brain because I'm writing a different thing, American Horror Story Coven, which was around 2013, 2014, and it features a group of teen witches at a at a boarding school for exceptional young women, basically for teen witches, um, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and the film The Witch. And I looked at those texts very much in terms of what they have to say about agency and autonomy and consent. Um, Because that's, I mean, obviously that is very much what was in Zeitgeist. That was very much a part of the cultural conversation at that particular moment. You know, again, it was the Me Too, Time's Up era. 
Um, there were a lot of conversations in the media about things like rape culture, for example. Um, a number of the plot points in American Horror Story Coven, for example, draw directly on um, stories that at the time were contemporary in the media uh, involving um, you know, rape and sexual abuse at high schools and colleges in the US that you know, quickly transformed into victim blaming or involved administrations sweeping them under the rug and you know, basically not helping victims to achieve any sense of justice. Uh, so it was drawing very directly on those. But even in things like Sabrina, which is very much particularly in its first season or two before it becomes very muddled, is very much about Sabrina attempting to gain a degree of agency and control over her body and determining what will happen to her body and to herself. Um, likewise, The Witch, I think, is very much about a young woman sort of seeking autonomy and agency uh, through ultimately through witchcraft and through an alignment with the devil. So I think those works very much reflect what was going on culturally at the time. And they reflect a lot of the contemporary discourses about agency, a lot of the contemporary fourth wave discourses around things like consent and bodily autonomy, uh, sometimes in in kind of cheesy ways. I think the, the Sabrina series, for example, was a little bit on the nose. Um, so for example, it had a, it had, um, it had a group that was founded by one of the characters called, uh, the group was called Wicca, which stood for like women's intersectional, cultural and artistic, I can't remember the full thing, but like it, it was really, really on the nose, but it was obviously drawing on those conversations that were happening at that moment in time. Um, so that entire chapter is kind of centered around agency and autonomy and power relations and consent. Um, and yeah, it was very, it was very much sort of reflective of what was happening at that moment in time. Uh, I mean, I think part of the chapter also sort of problematizes that in that quite a number of those teen uh, which works from the 2010s and early 2000s, while they present their protagonists who are often kind of, you know, white, conventionally beautiful, thin, able-bodied young women as, you know, characters who are able to sort of fight for their agency and negotiate their own power um, in the world. They often present, you know, characters of color in particular, witches of color, as sort of more objectified and not as able or, you know, not as able to access that kind of agency. Um, you know, often they're, they're often presented as kind of more dehumanized, more associated with kind of nature and the body. And they don't necessarily go on these same journeys towards towards agency and autonomy that their white counterparts um, manage to. So there, there is kind of an interesting there, there is an interesting kind of dichotomy there where a lot of the 2010s, 2020s teen witch works they are drawing on those cultural conversations about autonomy and sexual violence and things but they're very much focused on you know white cisgendered able-bodied characters um so there's a bit of kind of an issue there as well that was very much glossed over i think at the time so i have to ask you like so you know you go through this um and maybe it's a two-prong question like okay. where do you think 
it's you can I mean you can answer both or one or the other. Like where do you think Teen Witches like the next where do you think Teen Witches are going to go, right? After doing this? Or maybe where do you want to see Teen Witches go that maybe they won't like what are we either missing or what is it you think um is going to based on sort of what you've looked at, based on because you did end um with very recent text, but what do you think this next sort of iteration of the Teen Witch is going to look like? Yeah, or should I look mean, like? I, I think that where it's going and where well, where I hope it's going, um, where I hope it's going, where I think it's going, based on what I've seen, is that it's sort of opening up that Teen Witch identity to a broader spectrum of young people. So. I mentioned this in my introduction, but most of the teen witches that I touch on in the text are, you know, white, middle class, able-bodied, cisgendered, usually heterosexual. Obviously, there, there are some um, exceptions to that. For example, you have Willow in Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, as an, you know, early kind of queer witch, queer teen witch pioneer. But a lot of it is quite homogenous in terms of teen witch identity. And in a way, that kind of makes sense, because if you think of the image of the teen and particularly the teen girl that was coming out of America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was, you know, the pretty, slim, middle class teenage girl. That was the kind of the teen ideal um, and the kind of the thing that people thought of when they thought of the teen girl for so long, it was that association with kind of whiteness and purity and affluence um, and promise. Um, And it was in many ways, quite a sort of quite a simplistic identity. But I think what we're starting to see emerge in teen witch texts is a sort of opening up to a variety of other identities and a variety of ways and variety of new ways of uh, representing or experiencing adolescence. Um, So for example, the last text I look at is a book called Love and Other Curses, which actually looks at a queer male teen witch. Um, And I think that we're starting to see more works that are opening up identity and the kind of the teen identity and exploring different facets of the teen identity beyond the sort of heterosexual white cisgendered norm. So one of the more recent interesting teen witch texts that I've looked at, and unfortunately by the time I read it, it was just too late to include it in the book, is a book book called Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. I don't know if you've read that, but it's fantastic. Uh, And it's about a young uh, Hispanic um, trans boy who wants to be a brujo Uh, like a male witch as opposed to you know a bruja and his family are kind of consistently pinning the identity of bruja on him based on you know the gender he was assigned at birth and much of the book is his struggle to kind of inhabit and convince others of his right to inhabit the identity of the brujo and I think that's such a fascinating book because I mean obviously on the one hand it is again opening up that category of the teen witch to a spate of different identities that had previously been marginalized you know non-white identities uh, trans identities but it's also exploring non-European forms of witchcraft in an interesting and sympathetic way uh, one of the other books that I looked at that that does that is uh, Afia Atakora's book Conjure Women which does draw a lot on traditions associated with conjure and hoodoo and root work and things like that. But I think in bringing in the kind of the tradition of the brujo at Cemetery Boys is also sort of exploring some of those non-European 
uh, witchcraft traditions uh, in a very meaningful way, because a lot of the time in many of the, certainly in many of the teen witch texts that I've looked at, non-European witchcraft traditions are often kind of essentialized or stereotyped in really, you know, really problematic and really, you know, simplistic ways. So, for example, in something like American Horror Story Coven, you have the, you know, the predominantly white um, witches of European descent who descend from the, the Salem witches on the one hand, and then you have the black witches who are associated with generally quite heavily stereotyped depictions of voodoo on the other. And similarly, in Sabrina, you have that division between the the European, you know, the witches of European descent who practice what looks more like European uh, witchcraft in some ways, but also kind of, you know, high magic in others. And then on the other hand, you have the, um, you know, black witches who are more associated with voodoo and conjure, which again are presented in very kind of stereotypical, simplistic ways. So I think books like Cemetery Boys you know, are really, really important, as I said, both in terms of bringing in other identities and exploring other facets of the teenage experience beyond the white, cisgendered, heteronormative one, but also in showing in complex and meaningful ways uh, forms of witchcraft that aren't Eurocentric necessarily. So we've been talking about witches. (laughs) We've been talking about your book for a while. So I'm going to ask you my final question, right? If you have um, something new you're working on that you want to share or anything with this book. So what's in the, down the pipeline, what's going on? Probably too many things because I overcommit myself. Um, I was actually just kicking myself for that today. I was like, why, why do I I do so many things? Um, So one thing I'm trying to finish up at the moment is an edited collection on satanic feminism in popular culture. So very, very quickly, because I I know I've been talking for ages. Satanic feminism is this phenomenon that was initially described in a 2017 book by Per Faxneld in relation to 19th century feminist and esoteric writers who reimagined Satan as a feminist ally, a kind of liberator of, of women who stood in opposition to the patriarchal Christian God. So it's a fantastic book. And I think everyone who's interested in like witchcraft and the occult should absolutely read it. Um, but I'm working on a book at the moment that sort of a collection of essays uh, that take that idea of satanic feminism and apply it to popular culture and to particularly 20th and 21st century uh, culture, because Faxnell's book is very much grounded in the 19th century, and his ideas are so interesting. I kind of wanted to see where they would go with um, in in the modern age, particularly in an age you know where Satanism is kind of part of the the cultural zeitgeist, you know, particularly after the 1960s. Um, so it's an edited collection, and I have a lot of like really interesting um, contributors. I think there, I have at least two essays that deal with the chilling adventures of Sabrina. So Sabrina is still there, um, but it's it's a really fascinating collection. So I'm I'm working on that and a few other things, uh, a few essays and things like that as well. But the um, that's kind of the main thing that I I want to and need to finish because it's really it's such an interesting work um like none of none of the essays are written by me i'm just writing the introduction so when i say it's an interesting work you know it's that i've you know that i have so many fascinating people contributing to it and writing really really interesting 
essays about how the devil is used as a way to talk about feminism in ways that are potentially empowering, but also in ways that, you know, potentially show some of the nuances associated with patriarchal power dynamics. So that's the thing I'm working on at the moment. Awesome. It has been like so exciting and um, fun to talk with you about, which is that I love now I'm going to have, you know, you're adding to my list because now I need to look up the stuff on satanic feminism and yes, read that too. Um, So Miranda Cochran, um, who wrote Witchcraft and Adolescence in American Popular Culture, Teen Witches. Thank you so much for talking with me for new with new books and popular culture. Thank you so much. It was really, really interesting. Thank you. And thank you for some great questions as well. Thank you.